Father God, I, I thank you for the privilege of standing before these your people. And Father, we together come as sinners, but we come as the sheep of your pasture, asking you as the good shepherd to gently lead us today. Father, we know that there are dangerous paths ahead. We know there are valleys that, that include the, the shadow of death. But Father, we look forward by faith to the day when you will lead us all by still waters and green pastures. So today, Father, speak through me, take away anything of me that is not worthy, and I pray that my words will be your words, that your angels will guard this place, that your spirit will delight to be present here today. This I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, <clears throat> let's start with first principles, shall we, when it comes to religious liberty. I want you to assume for a minute that there was only Adam and Eve, Adam in the world, not Eve yet, just Adam. And when God created Adam, the first and only relationship that existed in this world was between God and Adam himself. The first relationship was between creator and creature. And that is why God, Jesus said that the first and the greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Because if, we were, if I was the only person on planet Earth, I would still have a relationship with my Creator, I would still have a duty before my Creator, and I am still morally accountable before my Creator. Does that make sense? So if there was nobody else in the world except me or anyone in this room here today, that commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind would still apply. Now this is not the first commandment to be written or expressed in salvation history, but it is the first commandments that could possibly be, because it is the expression of the first principle of the existence of any intelligent creature. That is an, an expression of his relationship with his creator. And when, the, when Eve was created, so the second commandment comes along, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And because God is love, he has, he has created mankind with the inherent freedom to recognize that relationship with his creator or to reject that relationship with his creator. Moses said to the Israelites on the verge of Canaan, Deuteronomy 13, 19, he said, I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. So religious liberty is thus the gift of God inherent within the gift of rational existence itself. And God has given no man, woman or institution the right or the authority to determine another man's response to God. As such, any service rendered to God that is not freely given is not, in fact, given to God. For God is love, and love and coercion can never go together. But something went wrong with that gift of religious liberty. And we're going to pick up the story, the time of the Roman Empire, maybe the start of uh, modern history, you might say. The Roman Empire, based on the premise that religion affects society, believed that religion was therefore the legitimate concern of the government, and the Roman emperors legislated repeatedly on matters of religious liberty in order to uphold the unity of the state. And for the first two centuries after Christ, while Christians were a minority, they argued for religious liberty under pagan Rome. In fact, the first recorded use of the phrase religious liberty was Tertullian, who lived in 160 to 220 AD. He was the first writer to use the words libertas religionis. Religious liberty was first raised by Christians living in pagan Rome. Constantine, in 313 AD, confirmed the Edict of Milan, affirming individual freedom for all and religious liberty. Only then, a few years later, in 321 AD, to pass the first ever Sunday legislation. 
By the 5th century, we come to Augustine, one of the greatest Christian theologians of all time. We may not agree with everything he said, but what he said was magisterial. And he argued that the church had the right to persecute heretics to compel them to enter the true church. Now, he argued this from the parable of the banquet, Luke 14, 16 through 24, where after the invited guests declined their invitations, the master sent out his servants to compel people to attend. Now, that word compel, and caso, can be either interpreted compel or persuade. But Augustine interpreted that verse as God giving the church the right to compel people to enter the church. Why? Because when they enter the church, there they find salvation. And even if we have to torture you to get you into the church, it's for your own good. And that interpretation of Luke 14, 16 through 24, that the church has the right to compel people through torture, if necessary, to enter the body of Christ, because in the body of Christ they find eternal life, that has opened the way for the Inquisition of the Roman Catholic Church, and in England, where I come from, from the burning of heretics at the stake. In England, in the Saxon England, 700 AD, the English king Inner, in 900 AD, Alfred the Great, who kicked the Danes out of England, um, Athelstan king, uh, king Athelstan in 924, they all passed Sunday laws as part of their national legislation, and it was based on the writings of Augustine that the church is required by the master, Jesus, to compel people to enter the church because there they find salvation. And those Sunday laws became part of the English common law system. And in 1676, King Charles II passed a Sunday law in England prohibiting ordinary work on the Sunday. Now this relates to us today because that Sunday law of 1676 was applied to the 13 American colonies. And so Sunday laws became part of the laws of the 13 American colonies from almost from the get-go. It was only Rhode Island, established by Roger Williams, that guaranteed religious freedom through the, the constitutional separation of church and state. But after the American Revolution, which, as we all know, was a victory of English colonists against German mercenaries of George II, um, that's a joke, by the way, uh, after, the, Eng after the, uh, English, sorry, the American Revolution, I should say, not the English Revolution, uh, at a federal level, the first, constitution, the first Amendment to the U.S. Constitution in 1791 was a well-known phrase as Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or restricting the, ex the free exercise thereof. And that is not an absolute right. For instance, in America, you cannot offer your child as a sacrifice. You cannot uh, participate in the Hindu practice of sati, the burning of widows or burning of young wives. Uh, you cannot... Um, under U.S. federal law, parties take some narcotic substances and argue that it's the free exercise of religion. So even though this First Amendment exists, it is not an absolute right. It is a negotiated right that is always balanced against the wider needs of society. It is not an absolute right. But at both the state and the federal law level, in America there have been continual attempts to impose Sunday laws during the so-called Blue Law persecutions of the late 1800s, 1878 to 1895, Adventists faced real persecution. Many were imprisoned, many faced large fines, and they were put into um, forced labor gangs. We call these things Blue Laws. They are colonial relics. They still exist on the laws of many states of the United States, 
within the United States, they have not been repealed, and they can be enforced at the discretion of judges. We still have blue laws in the United States today. They are a relic from colonialism, but Sunday laws do exist in many parts of the states. Now, America kind of was uncertain of itself, as most teenagers are as they grow to maturity. Um, so as America grew to maturity as a nation, America was debating, are we a Christian nation or are we not a Christian nation? And in 1796, Congress um, agreed um, a treaty with the, with the nation of Tripoli, a modern day, uh, in the Mediterranean, a, republic, a Muslim state. And in that treaty, Congress affirmed that the United States is not built on the Christian faith. But then in 1892, the Supreme Court passed down a decision stating that the U.S. is I quote, a Christian nation, end quote. And following that decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in 1892, there was the Chicago World Fair, here, just down the road here, from 1892 to 1893. And the House of Representatives up in D.C. voted by 131 to 36 that Sunday was the Christian Sabbath, and by 149 to 11 that the seventh day was not the Sabbath. This has already been voted by the U.S. House of Representatives, during the 50 years after 1888, including the Blair Bill of 1888 and the Breckinridge Bill of 1890, more than 145 Sunday bills were presented in the U.S. Congress, but by God's grace, not one became law. But if you want to know what the U.S. House of Representatives thinks, it is still on the statutes. On the record of the votes, the U.S. House of Representatives voted that the seventh day is not the Sabbath. And as we look back at Adventist history... I'm truly grateful for the life and ministry of people like A.T. Jones. If you don't know the life and history of A.T. Jones, please educate yourself. Buy um, the book by George Knight. It's in the ABC. It's a life of A.T. Jones. A.T. Jones was a whirlwind for religious liberty. And many within the Adventist church didn't understand him. But this gentleman, Blair, who wanted to introduce a Sunday law in Congress, he did a national speaking tour. And A.T. Jones got a copy of that itinerary, and everywhere where Blair went, Jones was there the week before, blanketing the town with anti-Sunday law pamphlets. Eventually, Blair got angry. Who is this A.T. Jones guy? And if you read through the records of Congress, A.T. Jones, as an Adventist representative, argued convincingly on many occasions before select committees of the House of Congress that the government has no business passing Sunday laws. The guy was a whirlwind, and we today still live... In, in, in the light of the liberty that he fought for. Amen. As we uh, <clears throat> look at the world around us today, we think uh, these things can never happen again. As Elder Steed was sharing with us this morning, things are happening in our world today. Um, if we're not careful, we're just going to miss it. But um, as Elder Steed said, said this morning, the, the chains are already there, they're just not tight. Let me give you an example. The Pope just recently issued an encyclical, an encyclical on climate change. He issued it on June 18 this year. And sec section 237, where the Pope is talking about our common home, this is what it says, and I quote, Sunday, like the Jewish Sabbath, is meant to be a day which heals our relationship with God, with others, with ourselves, and with the world, end of quotes. That's what the Pope said in June this year. And on the same day, President Obama declared in a White House press release, and I quote, I welcome His Holiness Pope Francis' encyclical and deeply admire the Pope's decision to make the case, clearly, powerfully, and with the full moral authority of his position for action on global climate change. I believe the United States must be a leader in this effort. 
and the Pope's call for climate change action included a call for Sunday worship. And in that statement, President Obama stated that America must be a leader to implement the Pope's suggestions in his encyclical of June this year, an encyclical that encourages the world to keep Sunday. These things are happening before our very eyes. It's time to switch off NBA and NFL and focus on the coming crisis. So as we think about religious liberty, we can understand religious liberty as the individual versus the state, our relationship with the state around us. We can think of religious liberty in terms of our relationship where there is a union of church and state. And we can also think of our religious liberty in terms of um, our relationship with the Seventh-day Adventist church. So I'm going to address first our religious liberty versus the state. And if you have your Bibles with me, turn to Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. It's a famous verse written by the Apostle Paul to the Church of Rome. Paul was writing in an era where the Roman emperors were monsters. The Roman emperors engaged in every form of deviant behavior you could possibly imagine. Paul wasn't talking just about general administrators here. Paul is talking about men who engage in every form of perversion and corruption and moral depravity that it is possible to imagine and even you don't even want to imagine. And yet he says to the church of Rome, he says in Romans 13 verse 1, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. And Paul just a few years later, was beheaded by one of those authorities in Rome. We learn from this verse here that the state is ordained by God for a purpose, to uphold law and order and to avoid anarchy, that the God has given the states of this world authority in civil matters, that is, in the material side of life. And we are to obey the law wherever we live, including paying our taxes, and we are to pray for our civic leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 says we are to pray for those in positions of authority. We are to pray for our rulers, whether we vote for them or not. We are to pray for them. But throughout history, rulers from Nimrod to Nebuchadnezzar to Nero to, to uh, Napoleon or to the Nazis have sought to extend their God-ordained limits on civil authority for the state, and they've sought to legislate on religious matters in areas where God has given no state the authority to legislate. Turn to Jeremiah 25 and verse 11. This is the prophecy that God's people would be um, captives in, in Babylon for 70 years. And having um, prophesied that they will be captive for 70 years, in Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 11, this is what God says to his people in in Jerusalem and Judah, the remaining two tribes that have yet to go into captivity. Jeremiah chapter 25, I'll read verse 11. It says there, This whole land, that is the land of Judah, shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations, that is the people of Judah, shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So through the prophet Jeremiah, God revealed that his people were to serve the the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, for an, an exile period of 70 years. And yet when Nebuchadnezzar came to power in 605 BC and he conquered Jerusalem and took the first wave of of captives off to Jerusalem. Uh, A few years later, he had the dream of the statue. We're all familiar with the story of Daniel 2. And then in Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar decides that his kingdom is going to last forever, despite what God says. And he's going to build a statue of gold from head to toe. He sought to rule the world in civil and religious matters. 
Nebuchadnezzar sought to be the, religion, the ruler in the religion of the world and of the religion of the world. And Nebuchadnezzar sought to restrict religious liberty. So if you turn to Daniel 3, you find what happens there. I'm sure many of us are familiar with the story that um, the, the trumpets were blown and, and the, the furnaces were fired up and, and most of the crowd fell down and worshipped, including, we presume, representatives from the Judean kingdom of Jerusalem. I know those famous verses in Daniel 3, verses 16 through 18. The three Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answer the king, who demands to know why they would not bow down to that statue. And they say, O Nebuchadnezzar, verse 16, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Can somebody say amen? amen. Beautiful words. And so the king threw them into the fire. And uh, he looks in the fire and the three Hebrews are walking around in the fire. They haven't been consumed by the flames. And with them there is a fourth being. It's an angelic being. The king recognizes this is a, a, almost a divine being in the, in the flames. And the story goes on in verse 24. King Nebuchadnezzar said, Was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? They answered the king, True, O king. And he replied, But I see four men unbound walking in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. And so God had commanded the Israelites, When you go into captivity, you are to serve Nebuchadnezzar for 70 years. And when they got into captivity, and the king commanded them to bow down in in false worship, those three Hebrews refused to bow. So the question was, did when God said, obey Nebuchadnezzar for 70 years, did he also mean in matters of religion? Absolutely not. Because Jesus uh, delivered those three Hebrews in the fiery furnace and affirmed the principle that no authority has the right to legislate on religious matters. Yes, you are to serve the king of Babylon in civil matters, But no, you are not to bow down in false worship. And in verse 28, when the king pulls him out of the fire, it says there, Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Now, the King James Version says there, they changed the king's word. Notice this, God confirmed in this story that Nebuchadnezzar had demanded obedience where he had no right to command. Before the principle of religious liberty, the first gift inherent in intelligent existence, even the king's command must change. When we turn to Daniel 6, this other encounter between faithful's child of God and the state, we find the situation is reversed. In Daniel 3, you find that false worship is commanded, whereas in Daniel 6, you find that true worship is forbidden. And in Daniel chapter 6, the story of Daniel in the lion's den, um, many of us are familiar with the story. When the Babylonian Empire collapsed, the Medo-Persians took over. Daniel was asked to be the prime minister. He was blameless in all that he did. You might say he was the perfect politician. And the other administrators didn't like him because he wasn't corrupt. And so they sought every way they could to capture, to trap Daniel. And finally they decided that the only way to hurt Daniel 
was by encouraging the king to forbid the true worship of the living God. And so they said to the king in verse 6, it said, O king, Darius, live forever. Daniel 6, verse 7. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an interdict that whoever prays to anyone divine or human for 30 days except you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions. Now, O king, establish the interdict and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the interdict. The genius of this attack on Daniel was that those who were attacking Daniel could say to the king, this is not about religious liberty at all. The principle is at stake as whether we are a nation of law or not. Because if Daniel can flout the law publicly as the prime minister, and he can open his window three times a day and break the law, then anybody can break the law. This is not a question so much of religious liberty, they might say. This is that we are a nation of law, and if the prime minister can openly flout the law, then anybody can openly flout the law, and the kingdom will degenerate into anarchy and chaos. The kingdom will come to an end. And so Daniel was thrown to the lions. But when he came out of that pit, in verse 21, notice what Daniel says to the king. He says, O king, live forever. This is to the king that's just thrown him to the lion's den, okay? And he is a gracious man, is our Daniel. O king, live forever. My God sent his angels and shut the lion's mouth so they would not hurt me. Because, notice what he says, before him, that is before God, I was found blameless. And before you, O king, I have done no wrong. Daniel had broken the law, but he affirms that before God he was blameless. So when the governments presume to legislate on religious matters, we are blameless before God when we break the law in order to uphold God's law. And then Daniel says, and before you, O king, I, was, I have done you no harm. I have done no wrong. So when we break laws that impinge on religious liberty, not only are we blameless before God, but those countries that impose laws on religious liberty, they're actually working against God. And when we disobey those laws, we're actually being a blessing to those countries. We do those countries no harm when we uphold the law of God. Before you, O king, said Daniel, I have done no wrong. So any law that touches religion is essentially invalid. For it is the law of God and not the word of any monarch or the law of any nation that is unchangeable. When we come to religious liberty and the uh, the union of church and state... Well, the union of church and state goes back a long way. And perhaps the most stark example of the union of church and state was the crucifixion of our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19, you notice there that when the the Jewish religious leaders wanted Jesus dead, they could find no reason for condemning him. They hired false witnesses, and the false witnesses could not agree with one another. And they slapped him and they beat him and they broke every judicial law of their own system. And finally they drag him before Pilate. And Pilate knows that they've handed him over because of envy. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. Pilate knows that Jesus has done no wrong. And that they're motivated not by um, a desire to uphold the law because Jesus has not broken any law. But they're motivated by envy. And finally when Pilate realizes that he has no option humanly speaking, but to agree to the crucifixion of Jesus, 
read it in John 19, verse 13, or verse 12. The Jews cried out, if you release this man, John 19, verse 12, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets him up against the emperor. The emperor was Tiberius. He was a sadist and a monster. And the chief of the Praetorian guy was a guy called Sejanus, who was an anti-Semite who encouraged Pilate in his de- deprivations within um, Judea itself. And Pilate knew that if Ponch- uh, Tiberius would hear that he is no friend of the emperor, that in those days you didn't just get a pink slip. You may be beheaded at best. But when Pilate heard those words, verse 13, he brought Jesus outside and sat on the judge's bench at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. And he said to the Jews, here is your king. And they cried away, cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, asked them, shall I crucify your king? It's a brilliant question. Shall I crucify your king, says Pilate? And the response, they're backed into a corner. The chief priests answered, we have no king but the emperor. It was a formal renunciation of the Jews' hopes for a Messiah. They accepted human authority over the Jewish nation. And they abandoned their hope in the Messiah at that moment. So the church of its day, the Sanhedrin, united with the state of its day, the Roman state, in order to commit the greatest crime that's ever occurred on planet Earth, as the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior. And wherever church and state have been united, this union has proved nothing but a curse for suffering humanity. And that is why we as Adventists work for the separation of church and state. It's why we publish magazines like Liberty. Because we recognize from salvation history that when church and state are united, there is nothing but evil for God's people and for all people. So on your way out today, pick up a copy of Liberty. They're on the back there, on the table on the back. And uh, learn more about principles of religious liberty. If you turn to Acts 5, verse 27 and 29, uh, the apostles... Uh, speak a very clear principle here. It's a principle I learnt from my parents as a young man. It's a principle that has served me well in life. It's a principle that will serve us well as we go through the winter of Earth's existence. Acts chapter 5 and verse 29. We're here the Sanhedrin are commanding the apostles not to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And the apostles respond. They say, but Peter and the apostles answered, verse 29, we must obey God rather than man. It's a simple clear principle. But if I'm to obey God, it presumes that I actually know what God's will in the matter is, does it not? I cannot say I must obey God rather than man. I know what man's will is, but what is God's will? So am I taking the time to find God's will for me in in my life? It's easy to quote this verse, I must obey God rather than man, but if I have no idea what God's will is, it's kind of a pointless statement. We are, as the Bereans were, to be more noble than the other Jews of their area. We are to study the scriptures day by day to see whether what you hear even this morning is true or not. We ought to have an intelligent faith that give an answer for what we believe and why we believe and in whom we believe. So we can say we obey God rather than man, but we need to know what God's will is. And we need to be searching for that will. And searching for that will is like searching for the pearl of great treasure. The kingdom of God is not the pearl, but it is the experience of searching for it. As we search day by day for that pearl of great treasure, God brings us insights and wisdom that we would never otherwise have. So brothers and sisters, as as we live through this coming day, this, this week, this month, this year, make it your objective to know God's will in your life. 
Oftentimes, we know what God's will is, we just don't want to follow it. Oftentimes, people say, Pastor, I have a dilemma, and I don't know what to do about it. And within a couple of seconds, you know, you know that they know exactly what God's will on the matter is. But they're searching scriptures for a get-out clause they've somehow missed. When we sit down to read the scriptures, before we sit down, we should say, God, whatever you reveal to me now, give me the courage to follow through with it. Because then we are emotionally and spiritually ready to follow through with what God reveals to us. And these may be little things, but the cumulative impact of little things is a sanctified life. When we consider religious liberty in the church, what can we say about the church? The church is the ecclesia, ek kaleo, it means those who have been called out of the world. In the ancient Greek city-states of Athens and Sparta and Corinth, um, when they wanted a city, um, a vote... They wouldn't call everybody in the city out to the plains to vote. They would call the free men. So all the slaves were left in the city, all the women were left in the city, all the sick were left in the city, all the children were left in the city, all those who didn't own land were left in the city, but it was the free men who were the ecclesia. They were called out because they were the leading men of the city and they would make the decision. And that word ecclesia is what Jesus refers to his church as. He refers to us as the ecclesia, which means we're not slaves to sin, that yes, we may not be landowners, but we are the heirs with Christ of eternal riches. And he leads us with his spirits to come out of this world in order that we might worship our heavenly father, but then he sends us back into the world to proclaim the everlasting gospel. And so we exist as a community, as a church, of those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We join together for worship, for fellowship, for instruction in the word, for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, for service to all humanity, and the proclamation of the gospel. Christianity is not a solo religion. It is a community faith. And the spiritual gifts that God gives his church, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and Ephesians 4, the three classic passages on spiritual gifts, make it crystal clear that the church is a mutual community where we have mutual responsibilities one to another. Where if I use my gifts and you use your gifts and if you use your gifts, the whole body is strengthened as a result. We live in a mutual body. And when we talk about religious liberty vis-a-vis the church, um, this raises interesting questions because we also disfellowship people. Religious liberty normally means freedom for a denomination for their religion from interference by the state. When we think of the phrase religious liberty, most people think we want Congress not to make any law regarding Sunday law. We think about our faith and our church and the state But religious liberty also affects our relationship with our brothers and our sisters. And what do I mean by this? It is simply this, that we disagree with Augustine who said you can compel people into the body of Christ. We uphold the principle of religious liberty, which means you are free to enter the Adventist church and you are also free to leave the Adventist church, if so convicted. That means that as we gather here on this Sabbath morning, we do not gather for reasons of social convenience or coercion but we gather because we are convicted disciples of the Lord and Savior of mankind. We are here by conviction, and God only wants us here by conviction. God doesn't want us necessarily here if we're here because we're told we have to be here or we'll lose our jobs if we're not here. We are disciples of Jesus by conviction, not for convenience or coercive reasons. We are here because we are converted by the Holy Spirit and convicted of the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. And because of that, in 1 Peter 3, verse 15... If you turn in your Bibles, turn with me in your Bibles to James, Peter, John, 
Um, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, right near the end of your Bibles, you've got James, Peter, John, Jude, and Revelation, so just a few pages back from Revelation. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, we read there, it says, the second half of the verse, 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, Peter says, always... Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Does he say occasionally? Or when prepared? No. We are always to have, be able to make a defense. You say, well, I'm not that well prepared. Well, I downloaded an app the other day. They shared it at the GC session. If I can find it here. It's free. And uh, here it is. It's called um, Sharing Hope. You can download it for free. It'll take you 30 seconds when you get home this afternoon. When you download Sharing Hope, it has the entire Conflict of the Ages series on it. And, you, and it has a bunch of glow tracks. So if you're sitting on a, pl- on a plane or in the coach going to O'Hare or you're in um, Walmart and someone asks you a question, you may not say, uh, you may not think I have the answers right now, but you have a smartphone and you have this app. You say, give me your email address and you can send them the web link to an incredible um, document. We can all be prepared and be intentional about sharing our faith. And so in terms of religious liberty and our relationship with the church, we'd say this. We are to know for ourselves what we believe, why we believe it, and whom we believe. And God wants us to be convicted and converted, not here by coercion or or convenience. But when we talk about religious liberty... We also recognize that in the world today, we live in a fast-changing world. This here is the Sharia law. Now, you may not want it for Christmas, but um, it's a a great read, actually. It's like Leviticus on steroids. (laughs) And um, you can buy it on Amazon for about $35. It's called The Reliance of the Traveler, a classic manual of Islamic sacred law. And it has the um, official imprint of approval from the leading um, Arabic universities of the world, from the University of Damascus, from the Mufti of the Jordanian Armed Forces, from the Fiqh Academy of Jeddah of North America, most importantly from Al-Azhar. It's the leading Sunni university in the world. It's in Cairo. And uh, I read it through a couple of summers ago. Um, I'm not going to do it again, but... This is the fastest growing faith in the world, so they say. Well, it would be, because if anybody, if anybody leaves, they get killed. So if we had only people joining the Adventist Church, we'd also be the fastest growing faith in the world. <laughs> but as you look through this, this is based on the, the teachings of Muhammad. They're called the Hadith. This is mostly where the Sharia comes from. The goal of Islam is to bring the whole world under Sharia law. This is the Sharia law. The Sharia law says a number of things here, when it's okay to punish a Muslim, when it's not okay to punish a Muslim. One of the reasons why it is not okay to punish a Muslim, I'm going to quote, is a Muslim for killing a non-Muslim. That means in Islamic holy law, if a Muslim kills you, they are blameless in Muslim thought. Secondly, a father or mother for killing their offspring, and there's an honor killing. It is a blameless thing in Islamic holy law. Apostasy from Islam says when a person who has reached puberty and is sane voluntarily apostatizes from Islam, he deserves to be killed. You may dialogue with him, but if he refuses, he is to be immediately 
killed, etc., etc. And there are pages and pages and pages of when you can kill people, um, all, lit all listed in the, the church manual for the fastest growing faith in the world today. We are living in a world where people are being denied increasingly basic principles of religious liberty. But religious liberty is like a Christmas gift. What do I mean by that? Well, Christmas is coming up, and I know for many children this is a time of great excitement, is it not? For me, it's a time of trepidation. I'm wondering about my bank account in January. <laughs> <clears throat> my father used to call my uncle about three weeks before Christmas when we were living in England, his twin brother. I'm a twin. He's a twin. And um, we knew what that phone call meant. The phone call meant we'll just have a moratorium on presents this year. And as kids, we were just distraught by this moratorium on presents. And so we'd negotiate for, like, um, you know, can we spend, like, $3 each on a present? And so we'd give each other a, a pen or something, something like that. But religious liberty is like a Christmas present. That is, it's no use when it's sitting unpacked. If I have a Christmas present this year, and I believe I will get one, hopefully, <laughs> I, I trust I will. I'm not going to leave it unwrapped, sitting under my bed. I'm going to open it up. Because a Christmas present is a beautiful thing, but it has to be unwrapped, and it has to be experienced, doesn't it? And religious liberty is a bit like that. We may say, I want my religious liberty, and the government is interfering with my religious liberty, and the Pope is working behind the scenes to restrict my religious liberty, all of which is true, but we have religious liberty right now in the States, do we not? And to say, I want religious liberty while refusing to use that religious liberty is like having the cars to a Ferrari and never wanting to drive it. It's meaningless. So, while we may talk about religious liberty as a concept, we need to ask ourselves, what are our responsibilities as people today who enjoy religious liberty? Let's open that present a bit. There are three dimensions I want to explore here. One is that as we have religious liberty, we live for the lost. As citizens of the United States, we support religious liberty today because we do defend the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the First Amendment. And in doing so, we defend the very best of human civilization. Okay, I'm a Brit, I'm saying this, but this is absolutely true. You cannot read the Gettysburg Address or the Bill of Rights without being deeply moved inside. These are some of the finest documents in human history. And though I'm not a U.S. citizen yet, as I live here, I do uphold the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment and the U.S. Constitution. And in so doing, we defend the inherent dignity of every human being as a created child of God. But broader than being U.S. citizens, as members of the human race, we uphold the U.N. Declaration of Human Rights, which states in Article 18, and I quote, everyone has the right of, to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This includes the freedom to change his religion or belief, end quote. That is not a quote that most of the world accepts today, but it is in the UN Declaration of Human Rights to which the United States is a signatory. And as Adventists, we support religious, right, religious liberty today because it is God's inherent gift to his creation, and no man has the right to limit God's gift to another man. We uphold the gift of religious liberty because it is absolutely necessary for us to fulfill our prophetic mission to make disciples of all nations. If we're to reap a harvest from every field in the world, we need access to the field to sow the seed in every field of the world. And so therefore, we do work for religious liberty. But if you turn to Proverbs 30 in verse 8, you'll see that religious liberty goes beyond this. 
as we live for the lost in, 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 as Seventh-day Adventists today, in a world where, where the, 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 cloud, the storm clouds are gathering and the mist is gathering and people no longer know their histories or no longer read Bibles, in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 8, sorry, Proverbs 31 and verse 8, my apologies, Proverbs 31 and verse 8, notice what the wisest man who ever lived had to say. Proverbs 31 and verse 8 says, Speak out for those who cannot speak. Speak for the rights of all the destitute. We are not called to be a comfortable middle-class church, assuming that because we're okay, then everybody else must be okay as well. We worship God according to our conscience. We honor the first commandments, love the God, love Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind. And in response, God says, now follow the second commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's precisely because we uphold the principle of religious liberty that we cannot preach on religious liberty, but be silent on segregated or marginalized communities, or children who are going to bed hungry, or women and girls who are victims of trafficking, or be silent while single parents are struggling to make it, not through the month, but through the day. Precisely because religious liberty is our spiritual birthright, we as Adventists are called to speak up not just about salvation for eternity, but to minister to those today who are caught in family breakdown, environmental degradation, moral chaos, systemic social injustice, and human trafficking. The list could go on. Now, I'm not a socialist, but we do have responsibilities to our brother and our sister. What does this mean in practice? Well, a number of years ago in Cyprus, um, there was a lady, young girl, who started coming to church in Nicosia. And I, she was always very quiet. And I noticed one Sabbath that she had bruising across her neck, like someone put her hands around his, her throat. And uh, so we started talking with her, like, what's going on with your life here? Who are you and where have you come from? And it turned out she was a victim of trafficking. She'd answered a job advert in Cyprus for a waitress and had been put to work in another type of profession. And she was an Adventist. And they took her passport, they knew she couldn't leave the country, and they gave her Sabbaths off to come and worship God. The fact that she was in church was a minor miracle. So a couple of us gathered together. We said, well, after potluck, we'll go home to our homes, and she goes back to where she's working. And what are we going to do about this? Do we have a responsibility? Absolutely. So we said to her, look, we're going to buy you a ticket, a one-way ticket to your home country. And when you come to church next week, we want you to bring, if you can get your passport, that's all you need, your passport, we will get you out of this country. And she was being held there by a local mafia group. She was really scared, and then we became really scared. We said, no, we're going to do this. And so the following Sabbath afternoon, she didn't come to church. We drove by and knocked on the door of this place of work. And she answered the door, and she says, I've got my passport. So let's get in the car. I mean, this is kind of like movies. We were wearing baseball caps and sunglasses, okay? <laughs> Myself and friend, we did not want to be recognized by the mafia. The Russian mafia is very powerful in Cyprus. It's where girls are broken in before they get put to work in Western Europe. We put her in the car, and we drove as fast as we could to the airport. We got to the airport there in, in, in Limassol, and we said, give us your cell phone. We got the SIM card out and destroyed it so nobody can trace it back to us. And we put her on a plane and said, never come back here again. Go back to your parents. Now, I have a daughter. And if you ever see my daughter in that position, you do the same for me, would you? We are called to minister to those who are caught up in the evil of this world precisely because we believe in religious liberty. If you look in your bulletin, you have a little pamphlet like this. 
And on the back of this pamphlet to Religious Liberty Sabbath, there are some practical things everyone in this room can do about religious liberty. You may join the North American Religious Liberty Association. You could donate to the Lake Union Religious Liberty Fund, which defends Adventists caught up in Sabbath employment issues. You could write to your representative in Congress. You could go to persecution.com this afternoon, which is the Voice of the Martyrs website, and you can start writing to a prisoner of conscience somewhere in the world today. You can start educating yourselves about principles of religious liberty, and you can start praying for religious liberty. These are practical things everyone in this room can do to uphold religious liberty around the world today. You may want to sponsor a missionary this Christmas. Say, we're not going to have presents. We're going to sponsor a missionary working in Iran or Iraq or Myanmar or Mauritania. Because people there, while, the night, while we have the light, let us walk in the light and spread that light. Sponsor a missionary somewhere in the world today. Come to the evangelistic series that are coming up in this church about the, the fall of Babylon, the fall and the call. Invite a friend. There are many things we can do to promote religious liberty. We don't have to be, have official uh, titles or degrees or names af uh, letters after our name. We are all called to live for the lost. When we think about religious liberty, though, we are also called, in terms of religious liberty, to live with our brothers and sisters. And that's often really difficult, isn't it? Turn to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. Galatians 5 and verse 13, Paul is talking about Christian freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And he's talking primarily about people who, um, and Jewish Christians who follow Paul wherever he goes, they followed him like a bad odor, and they were telling the newly converted Gentile Christians, now you've accepted Christ, great, but you need to be circumcised. And if somebody were to tell me after I've just been baptized, now you need to be circumcised with a flint knife, I'd be thinking twice about my Christian faith. Paul says, I wish they'd go the whole way and castrate themselves. I mean, you get, he's kind of angry in the text here. But look at Galatians 5 and verse 13. Paul says to brothers and sisters to us today, as we live the principle of religious liberty with our brothers and sisters, he says, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves one to another. So if we are to express religious liberty to the world, we are to live for the lost. If we are to express religious liberty within the four walls of this church here today then we are to express that freedom by serving one another in love. And if you take the time and look up the phrase one another or each other in the New Testament, you'll discover dozens and dozens and dozens of commands of how you express that love one to another. Here's a selection. We are to have peace with one another, Mark 9.50. We're to serve one another, Galatians 5.13. We're to show kindly affection to one another, in honor giving preference one to another, Romans 12.10. We're not to put a stumbling block in front of somebody else, Romans 14.13. We are to be of the same mind as one another. We are not to set our minds on high things, but to associate with the humble. We are to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord, Ephesians 5.21. We're to receive one another just as Christ received us, Romans 15.7. We're to bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6.2 We're to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another Ephesians 4.32 We're to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs Singing and making melody in our hearts to Jesus Ephesians 5.19 We're to encourage one another daily Hebrews 3.13 We're not to lie to one another We are to bear one another up Forgiving one another Colossians 3.9 We are to build one another up 1 Thessalonians 5.11 We're to remain in fellowship with one another 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Ah, I can get lost in this stuff here. We're not to speak evil or grumble against one another. We're not to dine on the preacher's flesh. We call ourselves vegetarians, but we dine on his flesh over our Sabbath lunch. 
We are not to speak evil of or grumble about one another, James 4.11, 5.9. We are to love one another fervently with a pure heart, 1 Peter 2.22. We are to comfort those who are grieving the loss of loved ones with the promise of the resurrection, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. We are to have compassion upon one another, 1 Peter 3.8. For love will cover a what of sins? A multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4.8. Against such things there is no law. So if we were to ask ourselves, how do I live this principle of religious liberty vis-a-vis my brothers and sisters? I'd like to challenge us all this week. Think of somebody in this congregation that you know is struggling. Can you think of somebody? Can you think of somebody right now who's struggling with lack of finances? Maybe they're a single parent. Maybe they're struggling with their studies. Maybe their relative is in hospital. Maybe the marriage isn't as good on the inside as it appears from the outside. Can you think of somebody like that right now? Well, sometime during this week, give that person a call and pray with them. Send them a note of encouragement. Don't send a text. Send them a card. Write it out personally. Put it in the mail. A card is always much more beautiful than a text. Pray for that person. Offer to help them with their shopping. Offer to mow their lawn for them. Whatever it is, serve that person in love this week. And if 300 people here this morning serve 300 other people sometime during this week, Berry and Springs, the atmosphere will lift. And people will know that we are disciples, not because of our doctrines, but by the love we have one for another. So will you do that this week? Will you contact just one person? Just one person. And give them a word of encouragement, give them a phone call, give them a hug, preferably someone of the same gender, I hope. Okay, but whatever it may be, encourage somebody this week. Live for somebody else. Live with your brothers and sisters. And finally, we are to live for the lost. We're to live with our brothers and sisters. And finally, we are to live before God. Because the bottom line is this. Religious liberty is a call for each one of us to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. In the final struggle between good and evil, the proclamation of the three angels' messages presupposes that whatever other freedoms have been taken away, freedoms to buy, freedoms to sell, freedoms of assembly, of speech, of fair trial or impartial juries, whatever other freedoms are taken away, The book of Revelation tells us that the freedom to respond to the three angels' messages is the final freedom that no government can ever take away. We can still respond. There may be consequences, but the essential freedom remains until the close of probation. And that freedom applies to us today. Today, we are either free to respond to God with verbal confession of our sins, with a desire for Jesus to give us victory over our sins, with a call on God to give us the strength to turn away from this way of life to a new way of life that's called repentance. Today we can ask Jesus to be the Lord of our lives once again. Or today we can choose to enthrone self on our hearts and turn away the offer of God's mercy that comes to us through this pulpit. The Bible never says tomorrow is the day of salvation. Today and now is the hour of salvation. The last appeal in scripture is this, that anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift, Revelation 22:17, And that offer presupposes that we have the ability to reject that offer of mercy or to accept it. How will you respond? Revelation 3:20, our scripture reading read for us this morning. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. How do you respond to that invitation of Jesus Christ today? (coughs) Jesus is coming soon, of that I'm convinced. 
He's coming soon. And are we ready to meet him? You say, what does it mean to be ready to meet Jesus? It means this. I stand before you, God, with no sense of my own goodness, but I trust solely and exclusively in the merits of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you ready to meet Jesus today? Have you confessed those sins that are cherished and hidden in your lives? Or will you say that tomorrow is my day of salvation and tomorrow may never come for you? Will you choose to leave this house of prayer today to eternal destruction? Or do you choose to put Jesus on the throne of your lives? How will you respond? Joshua's closing words to Israel at the end of his life were these. He said, choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we shall serve the Lord. I've walked with Jesus since about the age of 13. So these 30-odd years, he has done me no wrong. So why would I deny him now? I'd like to encourage each and every one of you here today that if if there is something in your life that comes between you and the Savior today, give it up. Respond to the Spirit speaking to your life today. For Jesus is coming soon. Winter is dawning upon our world. Night is almost here. And we have to go through that night until Jesus returns. We need to be ready today. So I invite you wherever you are to bow your heads and close your eyes. And we're going to have a word with our Heavenly Father. Father God, today we hear your voice speaking to our hearts. God, we do not want our religious liberty to be an unopened, but God, may we use it while we may. God, today I pray that we will indeed live for the lost. We will be a light on a hill that cannot be hid. We will be the salt of the earth wherever you place us in your vineyard. God, today we would live with brothers and sisters. We would express the freedom you've given us as a, way, as a reason for serving one another in love. Oh God, may we bless someone this week. May you touch somebody's lives through our words, through our witness, through our encouragement. And Father, today, with our religious liberty, we want to unpack that gift and recognize that our salvation is a gift of grace from you. Father, we thank you, lest any man should boast. Father, we're asking you now to be on the throne of our lives. Cast out those temptations we struggle with. Give us victory today, Father, by your grace and by your power over those temptations and sins that beset us. And Father, I pray that when Jesus comes again, we will be in that glorious crowd of the ages, the communion of faith stretching back to Adam, singing praises to the Lamb who died and who rose again and who has redeemed each one of us from eternal death to eternal life. Jesus, be Lord of our lives today. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org